Welcome to this edition of the Charter School Investor Podcast, where we explore the question, what does charter school leadership look like? Uh, each month, we meet with leaders in the charter school sector to better understand how they land the plane while it's still being built. Uh, my name's Alan Wallstetter, and I'm the CEO and founder of School Improvement Partnership. School Improvement Partnership supports data transparency and accountability in the charter school sector through our SIP database uh, and by reporting on $1.5 billion of charter school bonds. I'm very pleased uh, to have today's guest on, the amazing Maria Mills, last year's North Carolina Charter School Principal of the Year. Maria is the director of Carolina Charter Academy, and she supports School and Forbid Partnership as our director of reporting. In this episode, Maria does a deep dive into her leadership style, her journey from schools in Brooklyn to a, to a private school in the South, how teachers' needs have evolved over time, and she'll also talk about how Carolina Charter works with its institutional investor, Rosemar, and her school's unique approach to safety, and a whole lot more. Before we start, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Herbert J. Sims. From Single Before Site Start, school, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Herbert J. Sims. From Single Site Charter Schools and CMOs, from expansions to startups, Herbert J. Sims delivers innovative and flexible capital solutions that meet their clients' evolving needs through their finance right approach. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Maria Mills. And Maria, I have to admit, I feel like it's the first day of kindergarten, hoping the kids will be nice to me and <laughs> are to me. You're, Thank you're you not for no, I don't plan on being mean at all. I'm incredibly blessed and very, I don't know, excited to be here today. So thank you for even thinking of me to have this casual conversation with you. Yeah, the first thing I wondered is, I feel like you started at a school in Brooklyn, you told me, right? Yep. So how does, you know, a educator from Brooklyn end up in North Carolina when you're addressing all the students? Do you say use? Y'all, how, how did you make that adjustment? Alan, I really think that I need to discuss before that. I grew up in New York. I was in Queens. I don't sound like Fran Drescher. And then I moved to Florida. I got my degree from University of Florida. And then I went back to New York and opened my school in Brooklyn. And I think the reason I don't sound like either Brooklyn or Florida or North Carolina, I learned to speak Greek at the same time that I learned to speak English. So if I was a linguist in My Fair Lady, perhaps there would be some sort of a comparison to the fact that I learned the appropriate phonemic way to speak both languages simultaneously. So that was my history in a nutshell. It started in Queens, but then I've traveled the eastern seaboard and been settled in North Carolina for about seven years now. And my charter school's in a rural slash urban. It's exactly on the border of one of the more rural counties and the largest county in North Carolina, Wake County. Sure. It's interesting you talk about that and about transitions and how you did your best to smoothly do that, having been traveling your whole life. But one thing I wondered about, and I know you wrote about it in one of your articles on school safety, is when you're at your school in North Carolina Charter, it sounds like you have more autonomy than would 
a typical head of a district public school. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Oh, it was. It's such a transition to have gone from a traditional high school that I was at a traditional high school as my first school, then a traditional middle school. I opened a regular middle school in Brooklyn. And then I was an administrator in Wake County. Only district schools was the experience that I had, with the exception of growing up at a very small private institution. But even for my secondary years, seventh grade through 12th grade, I was in public schools. Yeah, charter schools, I had to understand the definition of them altogether. Autonomy, 100%. It started off isolating on a daily basis. It's still isolating. And there are days where I still question, should I really be making that decision? Is there no one that's going to have an oversight about me? I can see where that can be frightening, but in the scope of school safety or really just in the scope of making the decisions for the little community that I'm building, I'm really able to make those decisions quite quickly. And the data doesn't have to be 40, 50,000 students specific. It can only be data specific for my little cohort of kids that I have in front of me here. Sure. There's so much in what you just said there that I just wonder about. One is, as a leader, some people would think that's maybe not charter school leaders, but some people in some contexts, it's about being clear about what you want done and all that. But as you were talking about it, you were really talking about how sometimes you want to bring others along in the decision-making process and how hard it is to know when that is and when it is. Yeah, I could go in a couple different conversations about that. I feel like I've been able to give my teachers a little bit more of a scope of their own, I don't know, that they can take their fate in their own hands. If they want some more opportunities, they can find their niche. If they want a club, they just have to pitch it to me. And for the most part, they get yeses. I really don't say no to much, as especially if it falls aligned with the mission and vision of the school. What I have found is that when anybody, this doesn't even have to be teacher specific, but I'm hoping to become the leader that inspires them to find their own way. I have a perfect example. And I think I have been chastised a little bit for this, but I had one of the best math teachers I've ever seen. Math teachers are hard to find. If you find one and they're somewhat sane, you hire them. Honestly, math teachers are not abounding. And she was one of the best I had. Go ahead. Elementary wishes. No, so she was fourth grade. I don't know how to answer that either because we're a K through eight. So these little blurry lines between fourth and fifth grade, they're bigger kids. They're definitely not our babies, but she was fourth grade. So she taught our math class and man, was she just charismatic and energetic and inspiring. She would have experiments in math class where they would see a pendulum swinging and they did a Newton's, like it was enough where the kids were actually not able to ask that question. Why are we going to learn this? They knew why. And my second year, she came to me with this proposal to start my STEM club. And I said, STEM, tell me more about it. And she was super just connected to it. It was one of her degrees. It was something that she just thought was lacking in public school. She didn't have children of her own, and she loved seeing the experimental side of things. So against a lot of my data-driven instinct, I moved her from a math classroom to a build my STEM program for the entire school. And it's not a tested subject. I'm not going to get the credit for it like I did that first year. But fast forward now two years, she's built my entire science, technology, engineering, and math program. We're using a college entry program that when the high school opens, kids will be able to jump right into like almost a coding two class. We have two laser printers, 3D printers that they're using just internally, and they're starting a small business program next year for it. And all of my students grades four through eight now take STEM elective. Again, it's like a small bite, but it had to start with her getting comfortable with that to begin with. 
And then the autonomy that now she has, I trust her implicitly. I know she has the best interests of the kids in the school, but it becomes her vision that I get to brag about. <laughs> oh, yeah. With that empowerment is really extraordinary in the best of public education, charter education, any education, any leadership, that's really what you want. It could be that you've already answered it by the way you described how you were open to it. But my broad question is, how do how would you describe the culture of your school consistent with what you talked about? And what do you put in what do you put in place to make sure that I call it those culture bursts occur. Something like that, absolutely. You're not really, it's not Carolina Charter STEM Academy. Yeah. And yet you were willing to go with it. And the result is probably stronger mass scores, more commitment, all sorts of things. How would you describe the culture? It's possible. Yeah, I don't know. Culture, when asked that question, I want to go to the textbook question. I like to describe myself as a distributive leader, but I don't know. It's a little bit of servant leadership too. And if I, maybe I don't have the quite verbiage to describe, but there's some component of if you're going to join the school, whether as a student or a teacher, I want you to become a part of what we're defined as. And since we're so new, that culture is new also. We're baby school. We're growing at every year at a 30% rate. So in five years, I might have a different vision and it might be more established. So where I'm really growing is finding the people who want to be part of that growth, who want to build themselves into that vision, grounding ourselves every now and then, remembering that we're here for the kids and that what's best for kids is probably the best answer at any given point. And I think fostering some of that autonomy and independence with the trust. Again, yeah, that STEM example was perfect. But there's also a couple of examples of where teachers are the front line. I haven't been in the classroom now for seven years. I have to have good teachers that can come to me and say, Maria, I think this needs to happen. Maria, can we make this change, this choice? One of my mantras, which now has become some part of where they start to say it with the kids, is just bite off a little bit. Like, we're not scared of things. We're not going to be driven by bigger districts who are telling us what to do. We make decisions internally, and we can change our decisions internally, too. Some of the part that I think I, I push my teachers outside of their comfort zone is the concept of feedback and feedback cycles and inquiry. No matter how good you are, tomorrow you could be better. And that's hard for someone who knows they're really good to begin with. So getting that feedback and adjusting to the part, let, it's not even constructive criticism. It's just our kids change, we change, what can we do better? And having that understanding that it's a cycle of growth continuously, I think has been where it really took some adjusting for some of my teachers who came from districts that were not be beginning teacher ones because then we could grow from day one together. So that redefining has taken some time and honestly has had to be really transparent in interviews. I'm going to ask a lot of you and I expect your pushback. So you can't just be a blind follower. I want you to be contributing to your meetings. I want you to be part of our staff meetings where if I'm saying something that doesn't resonate because of X, Y, Z, please tell me what that is. So we adjust it and fix it. Yeah, that's, yeah, you hit on so many different interesting growth strategies that I've heard about that you are open to that. And the fact that you create an environment, and I think this is part of the culture you didn't hit on, but it cries out, is that you're open to that discussion with your teachers. Because as you said, you haven't been teaching fifth yeah. grade for seven years, so you don't know what it's like on the front line directly teaching that class of kids coming back exactly. who have lost a grade or two. And for you to create the environment where you're open to that and making it so they feel comfortable coming to you. 
yeah. really extraordinary. So the other thing about it and it, that was in your comments, you talked about how your vision can change over time. And just personally for me, one of the things that reminds me of is Adam Grant's book, Think Again. And he has this great quote about how general managers of NBA teams keep playing that busted draft pick and actually countries go to war over issues that are from a long time ago. And what is important is really to take in the new data mm -hmm. and I love data and think again and make the best decisions under the circumstances. Yeah. And that's really hard to balance because I, if the pendulum swings too far the other way, then you're trying something new every six weeks because somebody else talked about it or it didn't work. So I really have tried to fine tune the balance of exactly what you said, trying something new if what we've continued to try isn't working, not being scared of an entirely new initiative or adjusting as we go. We call it version 2.0, version 3.0, version 6.0. By the time you get to version 10.0, it really doesn't look like what you started with. But that balance of also sticking with it just a little bit longer. When you were talking about the busted draft pick, you can imagine after seasons and seasons, but you don't want to give up on them after only a couple games either. So that balance of how hard you're going to work with whatever initiative and making sure you're really committed to it on the front end. Absolutely. That sort of balancing, and I guess more and more that becomes an interesting part of being aware of the new data, but also understanding values that are important, that are going to be immutable, including, as you describe it anyway, betting on your team's best yeah. and desire to grow and take initiative. And when they do it, you just go with that. Let's see, would I be able to ask a bit of a personal question? And, and okay, because and I certainly would volunteer my answer if you put it back to me. But what was the biggest challenge you faced when you started your So at CA here? Oh, yeah, that's personal and professional for sure. I think logistically the challenge was, yeah, going from a traditional school to a charter school, understanding those transitions. I had already blurred the lines of moving from New York to North Carolina. So that culture shock had, shock had already happened. But the circumstances to which I came to CDA, I think, is indefinitely was the biggest challenge. It had opened about eight months prior to me joining, and the director that it had opened under had quit within three months. <laughs> so if that wasn't enough, Alan, you're talking like three months around Christmas time, she escaped in the night. Like, we still don't exactly know what she's doing. I hope I wish her well, but I and then COVID happened. So March of 2020, then COVID happened. So the whole world shut down. So then I start in June. So both of those were particularly rough because I had to establish myself as a leader in the absence of a leader and establish myself as uh, a COVID expert overnight. World had shut down and our students were coming back to school theoretically in September of that year. So I knew nothing about the established culture or lack thereof. I didn't know what instruction had looked like, what observations had looked like. I had no idea about whether it had occurred. And then the actual fact that it hadn't occurred from March until June was a key component there. So I was hiring teachers for a situation to where I didn't know if they'd be in the classroom or virtual. And I didn't necessarily know what the existing teachers had been exposed to. Yeah, that whole first year, I tell you, when they say women don't remember how painful labor was so that they can keep having children. I don't remember that year because I don't know that I necessarily would still be in the game if I could have PTSD about some of those growths. It was just real hard to establish myself without coming off as the boss. 
but still build trust virtually. My first couple of staff meetings were virtually. They never got to meet me until I think September, October, we came back into the building. So lots of hurdles for me to establish a culture of trust and loyalty when they couldn't even meet me. want to take a quick break and just thank the Charter School Investor podcast sponsor, Herbert J. Sims. From single-site charter schools to CMOs, from expansions to startups, Herbert J. Sims delivers innovative and flexible capital solutions that meet their clients' evolving needs through their finance right approach. that it reminds me of the, the saying they used to say about charter schools when they started it in 1991 in Minnesota, which was running a charter school is trying, it's like trying to land a plane while you're finishing building. Yes, exactly. I've heard that saying and I have felt that myself. Oh, we need to adjust this or we will crash quickly. <laughs> yeah, that. And that's exciting because it's not, you're just doing what everybody does and, oh, we're doing this. Yeah. Okay. We'll do it like the folks down the street or the street. Yeah. Let's see. You did mention COVID and I know we talked and actually on actually statewide and actually nationwide, you had mentioned on some of the calls you've been a part of that there's been some learning loss post-COVID. What measures have you put in place to support your students and teachers post-COVID? So I think it's that's a multifaceted question because social-emotional learning and just the whole mental health touching base has really come to the forefront. And I don't know that it's going to go away because the implications of COVID versus prioritizing of mental health seem to have both become at the forefront of our needs. So that's the first thing. We've implemented a school-wide advisory. All of our teachers have been trained on morning meeting. It's called Responsive Classroom for the Older Levels. And it, it really is a, you shouldn't go home from school having not had one person say your name. There are some parts of isolation from quarantine that I think came to the understanding human beings need. We're social creatures. So we've established this morning meeting advisory program K through eight. It's been adjusted at that middle school level to be a little bit more age appropriate. In, in the kindergarten level, it looks different. You're sitting on the carpet going through your feelings and the calendar. And then in eighth grade, it, they dive into a couple of more age appropriate topics throughout the year. But that's been a non-negotiable. We're in our third year now of doing it. We've grown every year. We're at the point where we have to retrain our teachers because they're hitting that three-year mark. So it's different from having a home roof. Exactly. It's set up the same as the homeroom. So you still have the half hour where you take your attendance and you pass out your homework and your folders. Exactly the same structure. But I added about 10 to 15 minutes on it. So normally homeroom can be done in about 15 and then you jump right into math class. I added in about 15 minutes at the beginning of every day after carpool. So it has none of the arrival and exit procedures as much as it is. Some teachers thrive on it. They put the kids in the circle. We go around, we do an icebreaker, we do an activity. There's whole lots of brain breaks that you can do, but there's no instructional relevance to it whatsoever. It really is a forced kumbaya for 15 minutes. Yeah. It's so interesting about that. And I found this just in my personal life after COVID and even while it was happening, you just don't know what's happening in someone's lights. Even if you see them on a Zoom call, if you know them that well, that was a big connection in those days. And you just can't take those things for granted. So I definitely 
don't hesitate. I actually ran into a lawyer, one of my first mentors on Sunday, and I stopped to give him a hug in the grocery store just because I didn't feel like I had really done that properly to thank him. And could, you don't know what goes on in someone's life. And, yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. And, and No, and, and I think of COVID, especially, I think that's when it came to the forefront. Like, you don't know whose mother was in the hospital during COVID because we went from life to Zoom and the transition felt robotic. And I think that's the adjustment no amount of data can present except for we're seeing a difference in the kids being a little bit more present in math class. We're seeing the kids at least be able to support themselves socially in the lunchroom a little bit better now. And whether it's because they had that casual chat with their math teacher who also was their advisory teacher and they hated math, but they really like her now because she does fun games in the morning with them for 10 minutes or it's the residual effects of COVID are now further away. It doesn't really matter, but it's definitely working with some fidelity. My teachers even pushed back on it too, because they didn't, is this another thing we have to plan? Is this another set of lesson plans? What is the structure? So speaking of that same type of autonomy, I trained them so they didn't feel like they were flying blind, but they had a range that they could implement. They could do the bare minimum and just get the kids in and settled and have a touch base. And then little by little, they would get comfortable with one of the avenues. But it was instead of mandated, it was like fostered and supported. And if they were struggling, we had the guidance counselors push in and show them a couple of activities in a genuinely coaching way versus a you're not doing this right. Let's fix it and do it this way. So it's been a growth for two years. I won't say it's even the way I necessarily want it, but I think that's the humbling component here. The way I want it might not be what my kids and my teachers need. So the vision is there and then we're building it as we go to make sure that everybody's getting the best they can out of it. Sure. Just to tie that in a bow, although you answered it, is that sort of, is that among the areas of the greatest learnings for you as a leader during your, during the last seven years, how, when, and I don't want to superimpose my thought on it, but when you have the the nakedness of remote learning at COVID, sometimes you can see things that in the normal hustle and bustle, you might not spot. Oh, you hit on so much. Yeah. You remember all of those Zoom meetings where you could see somebody's office versus how they present themselves in a meeting? Yeah. Yes and no. There were some terrible things that that we thought during remote learning that gave us a bird's eye view of what students' home lives were really like. And you don't really have that. You can see it with a uniform that's not been cleaned frequently, et cetera. But it was disheartening to see that during COVID. I think what I've tried to do is more the opposite. I can't necessarily fix the home life, but I can make this eight hours as good as possible. And there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I actually talked about it in my article as well. You can't quite get to the scope of self-actualization and meeting Mecca without all the other things underneath it. So if you're not safe and you're not happy, how am I going to expect you to really have any connection to algebra or the civil war or Greek mythology. So there's been a couple of the reprioritizing of where our kids are coming at us at what level. We're meeting them where they are before we embark on our goals too. So I think COVID definitely reminded us of that. And then it's been easier to continue with that momentum. Perfect. You talked a lot about how with your leadership style, you supported the students even during this transition. And So I want to look a little bit at the way you support your teachers and staff as a leader. We were on the School Improvement Partnership database, which has operating data on every charter school in the country before I joined. And it looked as if the 
we, among the things we track is teachers with three years or less experience. And it looked like you had maybe 28% of your teachers with three years or less experience, which is pretty high, actually twice the state average. And so my question was, how do you recruit and orient and support your teachers given that you have created a unique culture? Oh, I don't know how to answer that. And it's funny when you take that database number and you're like, gosh, that was a feat. We did. We had, it was about a half of our staff were beginning teachers last year. I try to be an optimist. So I'm going to answer this with a glass half full. And I promise there, there's some honesty in it. But when a teacher comes to me with little to no experience, at least I don't have to undo things. If they're coming at me with jadedness or poor supervisors in the past, sometimes they do have a greater affinity for the culture that I'm trying to build here. For sure. I like that perspective and exposure. But I also enjoy a teacher who doesn't have anything to compare us to because granted they get spoiled a little quicker. They do. But they're being trained in a positive environment. They're being trained in a way where they can find their own way. I do think that grass is not always greener. So sometimes they go and they want to come back really fast. But I have found that our beginning train beginning teacher program, and it's blended a little bit to this year to a a slightly more hands-on coaching model. Oh, you do that. Okay. You have, do they have a mentor? Yes. They have a mentor that they meet once a month. And sometimes I try to make it outside of their content area because again, it's that social emotional need from the teachers. Sometimes they don't need the content help. They can dive into a third grade curriculum and get help from their peers. But that juggling of grading papers versus not getting paid enough versus the kids are crazy versus it's a lot, regardless of age or experience to be on for seven and a half hours. In the real world, you schedule your meetings and you theoretically have breaks in between. They have to schedule their bathroom breaks around when the kids are at gym. So there's a lot of teaching that goes against the real world, yet we have to train them and teach them as professionals as well. So I think that balance of training the curriculum, the instruction and the active teaching versus how to be part of a school culture and how to grow with your peers and how to train your kids to do what you want them to do, and then how to know what you want them to do. A lot of that, once established as part of the beginning training teaching program, I think has fostered them. We're down to like probably 15 or 16% next year. And when you say less than three years, it's really that first year that's the hardest because everything is brand new to them. By the third year, you know what to expect and you know what you like and what you don't like, and you know what your boss or teacher or your coach or your peers expect from you. So you have found your way in the school sure. or as you're saying that, oh yeah, you just have this incredible mix that you know you a little bit of love your data, but you mm-hmm. also love your teachers. And that just shows in the way you want to support them. It might be a little bit of a tricky question, but I wonder and it doesn't need to be how you thought it was when you were teaching versus how it is today, these young whippersnappers today, but How would you say that teaching where the calls on teachers have changed in the last few years? I have been in New York City, which is the largest teachers union in the world, probably, definitely the country. And then now I'm at a charter school in North Carolina. So through 20 years of teaching or education experience, I think that at least the profession as a whole has become a little bit more respected. Back in 2006, There was a huge teaching shortage, but I don't necessarily know that it was as advertised how hard it was. 
And then I really do think COVID, just another thing of a positive glass half full, a lot of parents who had to homeschool their kids realized how hard teaching was. And so I'd like to think that accolades, while not anywhere where they should be, I do think that education in a whole has started to become oh, that they work real hard. Oh, they know what they're talking about. Or at least that's the culture that I'm trying to build with my parents is you can have an opinion and you can definitely be invested and involved in your children's education. This is a school of choice, but we also are hiring highly qualified teachers that we have to trust their capacity and have fidelity in what they're executing in the classroom. So I think that's at least what I'm trying to build is this professionalism where we are part of the real world. We're never going to have corporate. We're never going to be able to work remotely all the time. I watch these TikToks working remotely on the beach. No, we're going to have to be here in front of our second graders. That's never going to be something I can offer you. But I've tried to create this idea of you have PTO, you take it when you want. Make sure that we have a, an established expectation for who's teaching your kids because we still chose this because kids are first. We still chose this because we're in it because of those 25 faces in front of us. So I think that I think I answered your question. I don't yeah, know. I'm, you, okay. You did beautifully. And okay. it made me think of one piece I would add to that growing respect is, and this is just maybe me, maybe I'm the only one in America, but I feel teachers have now joined the league of first responders. Yeah. It feels whether it's the military defending us or police and fire and ambulance, the teachers who find America as it is, and they're the first folks that people run into, regardless of the circumstance. And if society has maybe changed a bit over the last five to seven years, and yet you're the ones who need to greet that and figure out a way to go forward. Yeah. What was it called during COVID where it was the things that had just essential workers? Yeah. We needed to keep our schools open. And I'm not saying we're glorified babysitters, but we all have to go to work. And a lot of people who go to work have children. So the schools had to stay open. The implication of kids being home for that amount of time, we're still going to see the effects of for probably two or three more years. And so that that kind of, I think, gave credence to a lot of people, even if the effects of COVID are gone, maybe that mainstay in society can be adjusted permanently to where we realize that sacrifice of the work versus, like I said, scheduling your bathroom system on a daily basis when you can go because the babies are the most important. Sure. One thing I'm going to switch to, which you wrote about in an excellent article on school safety is that issue, particularly through the lens of a leader, as a charter school leader, 158 school shootings since 2018. And I wondered, you had talked before with me about how you, your reaction when you heard that there was a shooting at a Nashville private Christian school that killed three students and three adults, including the school. Yeah. I don't know. It hits me too hard because I don't think anybody as a teacher signed up to be a hero. Not that we're cowardly people, but when you're a firefighter, when you're a police officer, you sign up for that, what you're getting into. And disconcertingly, that's been the first responder next step that we've embraced here. That's an unfortunate something that we have to think about. You talk about data and we, you know how much I love it. The dorky conversations that you and I have had about it because it makes me excited because I can make choices. I can make decisions. I can see a pattern and react. I love the concept of changing something based on new information that I'm given. It really does excite me. Unfortunately, that falls into the exact same place right now. We have, what did you say, 158 shootings? And that, that school in Nashville 
Exactly. That was a very similar situation. We're not private and we're not Christian, but I went through the demographics. I went through the size mainly. It was right around the same size as my school and it was right around a K through eight, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe it was pre-K through six, but it just felt a little bit similar. Maybe it just hit close to home that day. But I, we, I take safety so seriously. Again, you talk about Brooklyn. I used to do fire drills with shutting down traffic in Brooklyn. So oh. fire drills here are no problem for me. But lockdown drills, yeah, there are minimum expectations. And then there's Maria's expectations. And you talk about culture. Most of my teachers would be able to tell you, ooh, don't mess with her during a lockdown drill or a fire drill. Most of my students would be able to say that, too. You do them once or twice a year, a lot. I do lockdown drills probably closer to four times a year. Minimum expectation in like the districts that I'm familiar with is twice a year, usually in one semester. And that's where you can see where the rules come from in a district. That's the easiest thing for someone who's in charge of safety at this level to check is, has everyone done one once a semester? So we do it about four times a year and I do it when it's inconvenient and I do it when it's uncomfortable and I've done it when it rains and I've done it during lunch period. And those are the times that I was trained to shy away from because all the logistics hadn't been figured out because, again, we just needed them once a semester in the larger districts. I've had my local police department come unannounced and do them without me really being involved so that it's as true. You can't plan for it unless you plan for it over and over again. We, can, we can't hide any better. We can't really do anything else better. And that's the disconcerting conversation piece here is I don't really know what else to do. I've gone as much as getting quotes on bulletproof windows. That Nashville shooting, she was familiar with the school and they didn't know what they didn't know, but they knew a lot because I think they were connected to the school. She, they knew the layout and where to walk. And I can't fix any of that. I can only keep planning for the next time or hoping that it doesn't happen. So there's just a couple of things that I've implemented that make us quicker to respond or keeping calm under pressure. Like I said, that local police department and I have worked really well together, but I've actually decided to go ahead and hire an SRO also this year. Yeah, I worked with my board a lot about it. There's a delineation between I don't want my babies to be scared of police officers. They are heroes. They are really strong members of our community. I'd rather one be on campus so that they can have some casual advisory. We can talk about school safety. We can also talk about crossing the road at a safe place or how we get to school and how we're safe in our regular lives. So with the police officer being present, I think that'll just continue to grow our culture and continue to have respect for our first responders. But also in my pure safety mind, we'll have an armed police officer on campus to respond in a worst case scenario. Sure. As you mentioned that, and we thought about this during COVID and, and we couldn't really figure out a way to measure it, but it struck me that as a leader at a, of a charter, your, your relationship with the community, very important. And we talk about the lessons from COVID during the, the period of remote learning. We had a lot of schools and CMOs that we work with were actually providing meals to the families, even though school was not open just because they knew that was important, as well as laptops and hotspots to be able to participate in remote learning where the kids wouldn't have the resources otherwise. Yeah. It sounds like your idea of fostering a relationship with the community and what that community is has evolved. I think COVID definitely did start it across the nation. Absolutely. You became more familiar of your literal neighbors because you were home more often. But I think there's also that balance of that's what a charter school is supposed to be. Because we're a school of choice. So the people who are here 
signed up to come. It's not like they they bought the house and they're going to their neighborhood charter school. They theoretically could have had no transportation, joined a lottery, all of those things. They're moving from what is their guarantee to be the school of choice because they want to come here. Involving the actual community, I think, has created that culture that I'm continuing to grow. And your PD is right here. Of course, they're going to be part of my community because they're the ones that are also at the grocery stores. And then these parents also work at this fire station. And I'm within about three counties is where my logistical, what is it called, where my address is. Like I'm in Harnett County, but I'm in Wake County, but I'm in Johnston County is another 15%. So I think that was the reason charter schools popped up in the 90s was because the district schools had a gap. It wasn't because they were doing something better or worse, but there was a gap in a need. And exactly what I'm feeling right here, the local elementary schools are over 10 and 15 miles away, which means the growth that I'm seeing residentially here, they need a local elementary school. And I just happen to be able to feed three different districts. And then I make my decision based on this little culture that I'm creating here and this little community. The only correction I have for the whole podcast is that it's this big culture that you're creating. (laughs) And it's not only having its impact where you are, but through this podcast, through the people you work with and talk to, it's going to have a broader impact beyond that because not because everything you've done is perfect. Nobody does. As I say to my engineers at School Improvement Partnership, when they there's a problem with some of the data displaying, I say, you did it. You discovered a way to not properly dis- display all the data. <laughs> Eureka took Thomas Edison 300 times to figure out the filament through the light bulb. So that's all part of the, the growing and learning. But I think the way you do it and you do it with leadership, but also with love, it sounds yes. very extraordinary. Maria, this was a privilege to get to learn from you and talk with you. And thank you so much for yes. joining the School Improvement Partnership podcast on this is what charter school leadership looks like. Thank you so much. It's been awesome to just simply sit and chat with you. So thanks a lot, Alex. One more time, a huge thank you from me and all of us at School Improvement Partnership to our sponsor, Herbert J. Sims.